you get scared out of the market? Um, what exactly will be the conditions necessary for you to feel comfortable to step back in the market? And how are you going to do that? Are you going to do it slowly? Are you going to do it in pieces and chunks? Will you step right back in again? And, you know, it's, it's proven over time that as human beings, it's, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially for retail investors without the discipline. And, and for professionals like myself, who have been doing this for 34 years, to try to time yourself in and out of the market is virtually impossible. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. With today's concerns about rising bond yields, recessionary indicators, consumer weakness, and geopolitical instability, it's little surprise that many investors are feeling compelled to play it really safe, to prioritize preservation of capital over return on it. That's very understandable, and for many, may indeed be the right choice. But it comes with trade-offs, ones that may well indeed be worth taking, but when taking them, it's important to have your eyes wide open about the situation. To discuss this important topic of investing for crisis, we welcome back Jonathan Wellam of Rocklink Financial. As a reminder, Rocklink is Wealthion's endorsed financial advisor for Canadian citizens. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Adam. It's great to be with you again. Hey, always a pleasure to have you on. Um, look, we've had a lot of, of feedback over recent weeks sort of about this topic, right, where... Um, yeah, there's a bunch of people that have been concerned for a long time about a lot of the macro issues that we talk about on this channel. There have been um, a number of recent developments that are getting people even more concerned. You know, I mentioned several of them: the 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 bear the, the bear steepening in the yield curve. Um, we've just had the outbreak of uh, some tragic developments in uh, the Middle East. Um, so, uh, you know, people are a number of people are definitely concerned about their portfolio becoming collateral damage to some sort of corrective event that may happen in the future not an invalid concern at all but as i said in the introduction you know there are there are trade-offs that come along with it and in the long run a bunker is not a strategy for wealth building so you want to make sure that you are pr protecting your wealth but you want to be doing it prudently if your goal is to build your wealth over time so we're going to delve into that deeply because i know you you have these discussions every day with people, and I want you to be able to kind of surface that in this video for our viewers today. Um, but if we can, uh, let's just start with a question I ask at all the beginning of, of these uh, interviews, because uh, it's a good way for people to kind of just get a refresher of what's currently in your head. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Yeah, my current assessment is that the global economy is actually quite weak. And um, I think people need to be very careful and cautious in terms of how they're approaching the market. And I think the large increase in interest rates that we've seen over the last 18 months is starting to have a significant impact on the global economy. And so, uh, yeah, so we're very cautious. We're, uh, we're scrounging around for opportunities. And we think that uh, people need to be very cautious and, uh, and careful given what, uh, what's uh, transpired over the last, as I say, 18 months. And uh, the concerns that uh, we see with businesses and as we talk to companies, you know, they're certainly seeing slowdowns, um, travel now is slowing down, a lot of discretionary items. Those businesses are seeing some pressure in terms of their businesses. So caution, careful, um, but we're also, also looking for opportunities always in the market. Okay. Um, I want to talk about how you do that in just a minute. Um, very quickly, though, just because it's so timely, I haven't had a chance to interview that many people since the news broke this weekend um, about the... Uh, 
you know, the the resumption of, of hostile aggressions between Palestine and Israel. And then now it seems in the more breaking news that Hezbollah uh, in the north is, is now going at it with Israel, too. So it might be a multi-front war at the time people are actually watching this video. Um, so uh, just on this specific development alone, um, how much does it concern you as a as a capital manager? Um, what do you think it's right now, your assessment of its likely impact on the, the capital markets? Um, and is it changing your positioning in any way right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a serious situation. From a human perspective, it's tragic what we've seen go on. It's just horrific to see the scenes um, of, uh, of, uh, of cruelty and inhumanity to, to, to other human beings and so forth. And so let me just put that out front. It's a horrible and uh, you see, you know, the evil that is possible um, uh, amongst men. Um, having said all of that, I think from an investment perspective, we're going to try to look through this event as awful as it is and try to look beyond. And, um, you know, the world does unfortunately go through some of these things from time to time as wicked and as evil and uh, as abhorrent as they are. But as investors, we are looking at things, uh, you know, medium to longer term. And so we're going to invest through this. It does mean that we should continue to be cautious if this were to, you know, further you know, break out further and it ended up getting more countries involved. I mean, some people um, have suggested that you could end up with major, major, you know, um, you know major war and you know, World War Three, in fact, is being tossed around. Um, we're, we're trying to just keep level heads, um, maintain some cash and continue to look for good businesses because history tells us that's the prudent thing to do as investment managers and not hit any panic buttons, but to stay disciplined and focused on the medium to longer term and, and work through this challenge that we are currently experiencing. All right. Um, yeah. So a big thing that's driving people's concerns right now, um, you know, it's a fear. Right. And, and it may very well be a legitimate fear, um, but it is a fear. And um, we do often say on this program that making investment decisions based on emotion, whether it's on the fear side of the scale or the greed side of the scale, uh, that's generally a recipe for, for making suboptimal at best decisions, maybe some terrible decisions. Um, and uh uh, again, you're a financial manager. You've you've worked with people for decades. You've you've seen every permutation of investor behavior. Um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that folks make when they're making investment decisions based on fear? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake is that if they they become fearful, and they just sell everything. They say, "I just want out of the market completely," and they just take off all their positions, which uh, means that um, you have to then you know, um, pick the best time to get back in the marketplace. Once you're out, then the issue becomes, you know, when do you step back in, number one? Number two, sometimes when people make that decision also, there's tax implications. So often they'll end up paying, uh, you know, there'll be capital gains they'll, they'll crystallize and investment returns that they're going to have to, you know, pay tax on. And so that will also compound that, uh, that mistake is one of the best ways to create wealth is to compound your money tax deferred. Well, if you're selling, you're going to be crystallizing gains and then paying tax. But the, to us, the biggest challenge is when do you get back in the market and what are you looking for? If you get scared out of the market, um, what exactly will be the conditions necessary for you to feel comfortable to step back in the market? And how are you going to do that? Are you going to do it 
slowly? Are you going to do it in pieces and chunks? Will you step right back in again? And, you know, it's, it's proven over time that as human beings, it's, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially for retail investors without the discipline. And, and for professionals like myself, who have been doing this for 34 years, to try to time yourself in and out of the market is virtually impossible. The best investors, the most successful people um, in terms of wealth creation, make sure that they keep their oars in the water at all times and that they are finding the best opportunities within the context of the market that they're, you know, that they're faced with. Um, for us, um, you know, we've, we've actually taken some money off you know, the table and we are sitting in larger amounts of cash just in order to be conservative, but we're also spending a lot of time looking for opportunities. So I think that's the biggest mistake, just ditching, getting right out of the market and, uh, and not spending the time to actually look at the opportunities in the marketplace. Okay, good. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there I want to delve into. Um which is, you know, it's almost impossible for anybody, even the top pros to, to time the market with real certainty, right? Um, uh, there's that Warren Buffett quote, you, you, you know it, Jonathan, about, um, oh gosh, what is it? We want to be right on average. What's the quote? Yeah, Buffett says you're better to be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Okay. Yeah. Great, great, great way to say remember, it. Remember Peter Lynch with, with Fidelity back in, of course, many of the listeners probably don't know Peter Lynch, but he was an exceptional money manager, ran the Magellan Fund back in the, uh, in the 80s and early 90s. They did a study on the Magellan Fund, even though it was the best performing mutual fund in, his, in, in that time frame. And the majority of the investors in that fund um, made very little money over that period of time. And that's because they would go in and out at the wrong times when it was easy to buy, when the market was going up, they would buy the Magellan Fund. Um, when people were panicking, they would sell. And, uh, and it's quite interesting to see that the fund was one of the best performing funds, but how the amount of money that people actually made owning it was a fraction of the overall performance of the, uh, of the fund itself. That is super interesting. Uh, random fact, um, Peter Lynch, lived and I believe still lives in the town that I was born in. Um, so I would actually see him a bit as a kid just on the street. Um, and he had that famous quote that said, more money has been lost um, basically by being out of the market, uh, worried about the next recession than was actually lost in the, the next recession. Um, and look again, folks, I'm not I'm not by any stretch trying to give the impression that folks should not be cautious. You absolutely should, especially in, in the type of market environment we're in right now. But to your point about, you know, people selling everything and then not finding a good way to get into the market. I mean, I've heard from some of our U.S. based advisors that they're they're hearing from people still from time to time who are saying, yeah, I've been out of the market since 2013, right? 24, I, something shook them out back then. And then the market took off and they figured, well, I can't buy it back in now because the market's gone up. Surely it's going to come down. And then, of course, we had nothing but an up market until the end of 2021. Right. Uh, and then the market was declining in 2022. And so nobody wanted to catch the falling knife. Right. So but the point is, is that these are people who were sitting on cash for the better part of a decade. Right. Um, because they they tried to time the market and, and lost, basically. Um, and, cash, and cash wasn't making much return over that period of time. At least now, if you're in cash, you can you know, can grab 5% on the short term. Um, but for years there, you were getting less than 1%. Right. And, and I want to share that I, I was in a high percentage of cash for you know, a lot of the past eight years. Um, so I myself, you know, 
I want to say fell victim to this because I, I don't necessarily re regret the reasons why I did it. I sure wish that the market had performed differently. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I took the conservative approach and certainly my returns suffered because, I, to your point, I was sitting on a lot of cash that wasn't really returning anything. And even now in today's market, you know, I still have a healthy amount of my my assets and cash equivalents, which fortunately are now earning more. But um, but it's not like I'm hogwild the market and by any stretch, I'm not I'm not advising anybody to go hogwild the market. But I, I do want to have this sort of honest discussion about the costs of being overly conservative, right? Because building wealth over time is really all about using the you know miracle of, of compounded returns over time in your favor. Uh, and if you turn off the spigot on on uh, compounded returns, um, you know, there's a real opportunity cost to that. Um, so anyways. Uh, and part of the financial planning side of that, Adam, it, when you're de dealing with clients who, as, as they come in, is if you're dealing with clients that are still adding to their portfolios, they're younger, they have a large, you know, longer time frame, then they can be a little more aggressive and they don't need to be chased, you know, chased out of the market. If we have someone that comes in who's not adding to the portfolio, they're retired, and they're a little closer to the wire. I think it's very important that they have a cash buffer or a cash equivalent type of buffer in short-term securities and so forth. And so for the next five to seven years, they know where their money's coming from. It's not going to be bounced around on the stock market. So a lot of times when you're looking at your weightings in cash and weightings in equity, what's your time horizon? Um, are you continuing to add to your portfolios? These, these, these questions are essential uh, to think through um, in terms of portfolio management and investment planning. Great point. And one of the things I really appreciated about what you mentioned is uh, you revealed earlier that you guys are sitting on higher cash balances now than, than normal. Um, that's not something that many financial advisors will publicly admit to. And the reason why is they have a fear that, well, my clients can be in cash on their own. You know, why are they why are they working with me if I'm going to put them in cash, right? And I always tell people, you pay the financial advisor to know when to be in cash and how much to be in cash for. And it also shows that your firm, you know, is is risk managed. In other words, you're you're not oh, we're just always long, right? Our portfolio isn't 100 deployed and always long. You know, right now you just admitted you get a pretty healthy cash buffer because you got some concerns and presumably. As you said, you're always looking out there for opportunities. You want to have some dry capital to take advantage when the valuations make sense, right? So let's let's actually, if we can, um, let's talk about how you are managing capital right now at Rocklink with an eye out for the concerns that that folks are talking about here. Um, uh, why don't you remind folks of your approach in terms of how you sort of structure your portfolio, and then you know how are you managing right, it right now, given all these risks that that we talked about at the beginning of the discussion. Yeah, and and again, as you as you've mentioned already in this in this discussion, we are concerned about the market. We are concerned about a lot of factors out there. So we share the concerns of uh, of the listeners and our clients as they come to us. So when a client comes in, um, typically they'll be coming in generally with with cash, or they'll they'll be coming out of a out of a, another firm, and they'll generally be coming with the cash. If they do, if they do come in with the securities, then we'll look at all the securities and we'll analyze them and we'll say, do we want to own these? If we don't, then we will sell them, uh, you know, based upon tax considerations and so forth. But if someone's coming in with cash today, 
we are only slowly investing them in the marketplace. It might take us six months to a year before we feel you know, comfortable in terms of just building out that portfolio. So we're being very, very cautious. We're, our, we're typically what they call value, more value investors. We're looking at companies that... Uh, purchasing companies that are trading at a discount to what we we think is intrinsic value. And that's often a discounted, you know, free cash flow analysis, looking at the free cash flow over the next five years, and then doing an estimate for the next 10, and then building a, a, a you know, perpetual kind of value in there, and then discounting them back. And so we're trying to look at, you know, look at companies that we think are trading below what they should be trading at in the market based upon their, their real economics. We'll sometimes, for some businesses, look at net asset value. So we'll look at the balance sheet and look at the assets minus the liabilities. Typically, those would be more harder asset type businesses. And so as clients come in today, um, we have our focused list of companies. So we have 20 to 25 companies that we purchase across uh, half a dozen industries. And we'll only invest in the companies today that we think are trading at attractive prices. And if they're not trading at attractive prices, we keep the money in cash. And so that's why the process will take a number of months and you know, maybe it'll take six months to a year. But as the market opens up opportunities or as certain sectors become more attractive or businesses that we want to own, then we'll nibble away and we'll start picking off those, uh, those businesses. So um, cautious, cautious, yes, but always driven by businesses that we like who, that are trading at prices that we think are attractive based upon the current market conditions that we're in. And uh, we think that's, you know, a prudent way of going about it and, and finding a balance between having cash and also being in the market and letting your assets work for you in good equities that are often paying dividends and chugging along quite nicely. And, uh, and then making sure that uh, our investors are starting to participate in, in long-term gains, setting them up, uh, setting them up well for the long-term. Um, all right, great. And uh, so, Jonathan, it sounds like that your approach there at Rocklink really is is a value investor, as you said, but really, you know, looking looking for the discount price, hopefully the deep discount price. There's that old saying uh, amongst veteran capital managers that you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. Right? You want to be buying value at a lower price than its true value, and then the game is waiting until the market price catches up to true value. Right? Um, so you're nodding as I'm saying this. So, uh, you know, presumably you, when you buy, you also, I'm assuming to a certain extent, have a little bit of a, an exit price already in your mind that like, okay, if the price gets up to X and, and, and the fundamentals haven't changed to, to justify even further value creation, that's when we know we want to get out of this thing. Yeah, that's true. And, and sometimes, we, unless it's trading at a, a fair premium, we, we would look at maybe a 30 or 40% premium. Uh, we typically will stick around in the business if it's a good business and it's continuing to grow. And partly because, you know, our valuations can be, you know, they're not perfect. And often when a business has great momentum, um, and I'm speaking not the stock, but the business itself, it's, you know, it's growing the earnings, it's reinvesting back in the business, it's generating high returns on invested capital. You want to stick around in those companies. It's hard to find great businesses that continue to grow. So we'll let it grow, but we wouldn't be adding to the position. We wouldn't be bringing new investors into position. And that's the big difference. When we when we add, we want to be buying at a discount, but we'll hold on if the business is really doing well and it's a strong company. Um, because businesses, I think what investors will find over time, a well-run company usually surprises on the upside. I mean, you've got smart people. They work mm -hmm. all day, all night to figure out how they can grow. 
And even when you get into market conditions like we're in now in some sectors that we might touch upon, um, there's pressure in those sectors. Well-run companies can take advantage of weak competitors. And so often when the market gets difficult and there's challenges, the weak, competi the weak competitors get uh, bought out and uh, strong companies actually can, uh, can ratchet up their growth levels. And uh, certainly we've seen that. Uh, back in the financial crisis, for example, look at the banks that gobbled up other banks or look at, um, you know, infrastructure companies that uh, went out of business because they weren't right, you know, they weren't properly constructed, their balance sheets, and then they get bought up by other larger players. So that's what we mean by there's always opportunities for a well-run company that's well-capitalized. Okay, well, that's maybe a good segue then into what what are the sectors that you're looking at right now? Where, where do you see the opportunity or or maybe where do you see you want to make sure you stay away from. <laughs> yeah, let me let me start off actually with what's interesting. One area that we're just very careful and cautious about, and we have been for a couple of years. So this isn't just something that you know came out of uh, last week or earlier this year. And that's the banks. We, we're we're very cautious about the banks, and partly because we're in a debt crisis, and the banks um, are you know basically own that debt. I mean, your liability is their asset. And, and, you know, I'll, let me just say a couple of things about the Canadian situation. Um, and I know that we're speaking to investors from all over the world. But in Canada, um, a number of our banks, uh, we, when we look at uh, uh, Toronto Dominion Bank, uh, CIBC Bank, the Bank of Montreal, BMO, those, and all those banks operate in the United States also, um, about 20% of their current mortgages are negatively amortizing. And so that means that the actual payment that uh, that uh, people are making on their mortgages isn't even covering the current interest. And people might say, well, how is that possible? Well, the reason that's possible is the banks don't want to be um, kicking people out of their homes and foreclosing. Um, and so what they've done is they've negotiated with people a lower payment uh, so that they can stay in their place. But we don't really want to have, you know, own financial institutions where you've got 20% of the mortgages, their assets, negatively amortizing. We also see in some of these banks, uh, about uh, also a similar number, 20, 22% of the mortgages have an amortization period now of 35 years, 35 years. And so what that tells you is there's pressure. There's a lot of pressure on the consumer that higher interest rates are putting a lot of pressure on the banks. They're sitting at unrealized losses. Um, their assets are under pressure, and we would expect that loan losses are going to continue to tick up. And so from our perspective, that's one area, in, especially in Canada, that we want to be very, very cautious about. But then if you look south of the border, the United States, and we, and we literally only have about 1.5% of our assets in any banks. But if you look at the states, uh, which has been well documented, and many of your people have talked about it on your show, I mean, now you've got... Um, an industry too with unrealized losses on a lot of their assets that are in excess of 700, 800 billion dollars. Some people say higher. And uh, again, we don't know how all that's going to play out. Um, we've seen some challenges earlier this year on a number of bankruptcies um, in the U.S. system, but um, you know that could play out in a messy way. I mean, Kyle Bass was on your show recently talking about the commercial market, and you've got another 200 to 250 billion that could be taken off. Uh, the equity of the banks, which is about, about 10% of the equity of the banks, and particularly focused on a lot of regional players. And so we look at that space and we say, you know, um, that's an area where why would we be compelled to jump into? Mm -hmm. No, 
need to go there. And you know, as I mentioned to you, mentioned you to uh, before, in Canada, if you're buying the Canadian index, which is called the TSX, the S and P TSX index, about thirty percent of it's banks. So if you're an index buyer, you're you're getting banks whether you like it or not. And so that's why we like to be sort of, uh, again, way off index and we're value investors in focus. So one area we're cautious about, long and short of it, is the banks. We think that there's still challenges on the banks and uh, not that they're going to blow up or anything like that, but are you, are you really going to get high rates of growth and earnings growth in the next little while? We don't think so. The same thing really with the life goals also, the life insurance company. So there's a sector where we say we don't need to go. We don't have to be there. There's going to be ongoing pressure for some time. And uh, so we'll just minimize our exposure and stay clear of it. Um, a lot of derivatives, a lot of messy things in the banks. And uh, and so we go, we'll go to a, we'll go to another sector. So that's one area where we actually stay away from. And, All right. That, uh, that, that makes great sense. And before you go on to, to the next sector, I just want to flag an important point you made there where somebody might say, ah, banks don't really care about them. I'm just an index investor. All right, I'm just going to park myself in these index funds. Well, you have to know what those index funds are invested in because you just said in Canada, the, the the main index ETF there for the TSX is 30% banks, did you say? This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Yeah, when you can, when you, about, probably about 25% banks, another 5% the life insurance companies, but 30% financials. Financial institutions. Okay, yeah. So anyways, the point is, is you, no matter what you buy, you got to understand what you're buying, right? So you, you might have just agreed with all of Jonathan's logic there and might think, oh, I'm sidestepping that because I'm just going to own the general index. Well, something happens in the financial in, industry, it's going to definitely impact your index there, given the, the high weighting of, of that sector. So important point. Yeah. One of the areas that we are um, much more interested in now, and we've had positions in the sector already, would be in, in what we call sort of infrastructure and utilities sector. And again, I don't have to tell most of your uh, viewers that that area has been pummeled in, in many cases. And that's because you've seen massive increase in interest rates. And so if you're a utility or infrastructure company and you're funding uh, different uh, projects and you've got capital capital demands coming forward, um, all of a sudden your cost of money has gone up and your margins are under pressure. And so there's a good reason why these companies have come off in value. But as we look at the carnage in the space and, uh, and especially the last quarter, many of the, I think the utilities are down uh, in the Canadian marketplace is slightly different on the S&P. You're talking 13, 15% as a group in just one quarter. I mean, these are large drops for generally pretty predictable businesses. So we, we go into that space and we say, are there some real gems here? Are there companies that are have balance sheets that are fortress-like balance sheets? They're well-financed. They have, you know, they've locked in their terms of money. They've got long-term contracts in place. They've got inflation adjustments, all of those sorts of things, right? So why are they being sold down to the same extent? And so we have positions in a couple of companies, um, the Brookfield companies, we have Brookfield Infrastructure and Brookfield Renewable, which are very, very well positioned companies. 
And year over year, um, I think they're down maybe 20 and 30%. The Brookfield infrastructure may be down over 20%, Brookfield renewable uh, about 30%. And yet those companies, when you look at um, say Brookfield renewable, um, you've got, uh, you know, 85, 85% of their, uh, their cash flow is protected by index indexation to inflation. 90% of their debt is fixed rate long-term that goes a duration of over seven years. Uh, in, in the case of Brookfield Renewable, uh, it's over 12 years, all fixed rate debt, um, non-recourse debt. So they're very, very astute at structuring their investments. And Is that uh, kind of the, fortress balance sheet you were talking about? Yeah, and so... Again, we saw this in 08, 09 with Brookfield. Um, they had very well-structured businesses and some of their competitors had terrible balance sheets and they were able to just step in and buy up a lot of these assets. And uh, and and so when you look at some, the Brookfield assets, you really have 10 to 12% earnings growth already built into these companies for the next three years. And they, they just did an update uh, in New York City back in uh, September, just last month, and just reiterated all these numbers. And uh, they're they're exceptional at raising capital, at recycling capital, which means they'll, they'll sell some of their projects from time to time. And so they don't need to be coming to the market to the same extent as some of their competitors. And they're in growth sectors. And so we look at that and we say to our investors, OK, let's this dollar cost average is not that we're going to put all of our, you know, we're not going to put uh, the whole caboodle, if you will, into, you know, into two stocks. But let's pick away at these companies. The dividend yields now on Brookfield Renewable are six and a half percent, and you got almost five and a half percent on Brookfield Infrastructure, and they're growing these companies at high single to low double digit numbers. And um, as I say, they're, they're, they just don't suffer from the same vulnerabilities as some utilities and some um, some infrastructure companies would. And so uh, th there's an example of an area where, okay, there's been carnage, they're down, don't run away. This pick away. Let's start picking away at these businesses because if interest rates settle, if we are getting closer to the end of this interest rate hiking um, series, which is quite possible. I mean, we, we're thinking we're pretty close, and of course they're off today because of the um, the, the war and uh, you know a flight to safety into treasuries. But um, if we are close to the top, then these companies can really bounce back nicely, and you can have a nice gain while you're collecting a heavy dividend yield in very safe, well-financed, well-constructed companies. And so that's an example of uh, an area where we see where we can pick off some opportunities. Okay, great. Um, so I know there are a couple other sectors that you guys look at pretty closely. I believe energy is one of them. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're fascinated in the energy sector because it's one of those, those areas that... Um, you know, it's being attacked. I mean, it's being attacked globally because of the energy transition, um, ESG, climate change, all of these things. But the reality is we need oil. We need energy. We need fossil fuels for as long as the eye can see. And there's some really well-run companies. But if you're attacking the industry and you're making it harder to get licenses and, um, you know, drilling is is cut back, um, and you're you're discouraging companies to, to in terms of putting capital into you know more production. Right. production. I, I just interviewed Rick Rule. He said we are decapitalizing the energy industry. Yeah, and so if you're decap exactly if you're decapitalizing it, what do you think is going to happen to the price? I mean, if the demand is still there globally, then the price is going to go up. 
And so you've got really, in, in, I, you know, again, we're not trying to make big predictions on the oil price, but you've got a generally a pretty good floor underneath you because you've slashed production, you've made it difficult to 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 put capital into the business, and now you're dependent on the you know the Middle East and other countries where they would prefer to have higher prices. So. In light of all that, if you look at, you know, we're looking at some of the Canadian oil companies, but certainly some of the large U.S. players who would, would fit this bill. Some of these companies are generating 12 to 18 percent free cash flow yields, some even higher. And, and that's because these, you know, at 80, 85 dollars a barrel, they are very, very profitable. And because they don't have the use of cash into new, new production um, to the same extent they would if uh, we were encouraging the industry to grow, then what do they do with all that capital? What do they do with all that cash flow? They're, you know, they're paying down debt, they're buying back stock, and they're increasing their dividends. So we own companies like Meg Energy, M-E-G, Meg Energy. Uh, some Suncor, which is now controls all of the uh, substantially all of the oil um, oil sands. Now they've been buying out their partners, uh, Canadian Natural Resources. But the same would apply in the U.S. These companies are incredibly profitable. They're just printing money, and if they just kept doing what they're doing, in many cases they could buy back the, all the stock of their company in the next you know in the next eight to ten years. That's how absurd it is. So we look at that space also. We say, well, with all of the pressures and as rick rule knows very well he's an expert in this area in in commodities i have a, have a ton of respect for rick and appreciate his information um you know as you say decapitalization is what you're doing that just is going to keep the price up and what's it going to do it's going to benefit you know the really well-run oil companies and so we have about uh, eight to ten percent exposure um, in our overall portfolios to some of these companies and we we really like the position and uh, as i say Dividends are going up, stock repurchases are going up, and uh, we think that's an, a really safe area to be. If inflation continues to be a problem, oil generally, you know, reprices to inflation, and so you've got some hedges there also. Okay, uh, I am going to ask you once we go through the sectors here. Just if we do go into a recession from here, which a lot of people are worried about in 2024, some saying maybe not until 2025. Uh, I want to have a sense of of how some of you know how that might impact your outlook on some of these companies. But before we dive into that, let's keep going through your list. Um, industrials, right? Yeah, we 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 we're looking. We like the industrial space. You can find companies that are are favored in terms of areas where there is ongoing opportunities, like above average growth. So whenever whenever we're looking at a sector, we're saying are are there secular growth trends here that are propelling certain aspects of this industry forward? You know, high and uh, growing at faster rates than the overall GDP. So if you take a look at um, one area we're spending time, we're just about ready to pull the trigger. We haven't done it yet, is sort of the, the whole electrical equipment space. So you're looking at these businesses like Snyder Electric, like Eden, like Hubble. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a number of them um, that we've looked at that are helping the electrical utilities rebuild their grids. The grids are under tremendous pressure. You're in California. I don't have to tell you about that, <laughs> how, how, how good the grids are. And, Home of the uh, rolling brownouts, yeah. Yeah. And and so if we're going to start plugging in all these electric vehicles, I mean, putting that put that aside for a second. 
the grids themselves are under a lot of stress. They were built in the 60s, 70s. They need to be, you know, in terms of the underlying build, and they've been plugged and played for many years, and investments haven't gone into the extent that they should. And so they need to be rebuilt anyway. But now all of a sudden, we want to plug all these electric vehicles into the grid. And so there's there's just massive, you know, trillions of dollars have to be spent to, re, you know, to rebuild, refurbish, uh, restore, increase the capacity of these um, of the electrical grid. So, looking at companies that are going to be selling a lot of the equipment that the utilities are going to have to buy in order to rebuild these grids. So, as I say, we've been looking at Schneider Electric, which is European based, um, Eaton, which is U.S. based, Hubble, and there's a number of other ones that uh, that we're we're zeroing in on. And so, when we think of manufacturing companies, if this energy transition is going to take place. Where are some of the businesses that will really profit from that? And that's not that's not the same. When you look at someone like Snyder, they're involved in a number of areas. Same thing with Eaton. So it's not that this is the only area that they're going to benefit from, but it's it's going to have a substantial impact on the business. It might be 30 or 40% of their business that will really be favored by that, which will help, again, spur up that growth, give you faster economic growth. Um, in the business, you know, faster business, faster growth in the business um, than the economy. And that's the kind of thing we're looking for and, and very profitable growth. And so boring, yes, but hey, in the next five, 10 years, um, there's going to be a lot more money having to be spent. In fact, there's going to be much more than five or 10 years. It'll be 15, 20, 25 years. And so, yeah. And, is- and that's something that can really be a secular, uh, a secular trend that can can overpower cyclical ones, right? So, for example, you know, here in in the U.S., um, uh, you know, this year there's a lot of funds that are getting pumped into a lot of infrastructure companies for the you know all the reasons you just mentioned that are coming from the Inflation Reduction Act and, and what's been approved by Congress. Um, and even if we you know, quote unquote, go into a recession next year. Those funds are earmarked to be spent, and I'm trying to remember who I was talking to recently, but they were basically saying that the problem, the bottleneck right now, is the projects. <laughs> so the money is kind of piling up, but they're trying to spend it, but they don't have enough shovel-ready projects yet to put that money into. So to your point, that's just sort of going to be a tailwind for a long period of time for the companies in that space. Yeah. And we're talking about companies that are very well run. Uh, they really have strong market positions, big moats around their business. You, you're talking, in many cases, oligopolies, right? There's a handful of companies that control the different spaces that they're right. in. And they've got, for better or worse, they've got all the political contracts. They 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 know how to you know be the recipients of of the political dollars that are getting spent. Exactly, exactly, yeah, and uh, that that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, uh, we had also. We're chatting about this list before we turn the camera on. There were two other sectors I remember you mentioning. Um, one was technology, you know, which has certainly been on a tear this year, um, but not all of it, right? You know, everybody loves to now pull up the chart of of the market cap weighted S and P versus the uh, equal weighted S and P, and you basically see that it's the magnificent seven that are driving all the market return, right? Um, so I guess you got to be judicious about where you put your money, even in that sector. And and it begs the question too, which is, you know, h- how much more momentum do these big names have in them, given the massive performance they've had this year? You know, how, how much higher can NVIDIA's price to sales ratio <laughs> get when it's already in the stratosphere? 
Yeah, I mean, technology is 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 an amazing area to invest in. I don't have to tell any of the listeners that it is exciting. There's lots of growth. It's um, it's to to me, it's really become basic infrastructure. I mean, it's you know, it's absolutely essential. You, you, you first thing we do, we come into our office, we turn on our, on our computers, and we're on software systems. Right, everything is run uh, in terms of technology. The issue is, what are you prepared to pay for it? And, um, and, and you have to be cautious, you know, from our perspective, you know, we have to be cautious in terms of paying for 10 years of growth that, uh, you know, at very high levels that uh, it might materialize, it might not, but we would rather look at companies in the technology space that are essential, um, very important businesses have great mo- moats around them, but are not trading completely in the stratosphere. Now we love Apple. We've owned Apple for you know many many years. We we like Amazon also. We think you know again these are powerful franchises, but they're not cheap. Um, Amazon you know probably uh, depending on how you're valuing its price to sales um, is is still got some significant um, I, we think more upside and is very defensive business and so on. But but they're big. They're and um, they've done well and they are trading high multiples. Things like things like Nvidia is an exceptionally high multiple. Things have to go very well for them. They really have to go well for Nvidia and maybe they will. But there's also a high risk that it doesn't, and therefore you could see a substantial drop in the value of your investment. So what we've tried to do is look below the surface. Um, we were able for a while to pick up a little Adobe, um, but then it took off like a rocket with the AI. Um, and so we made a little bit of money on that, but uh, not as much as we had wanted um, because it took off too quickly. But one of the companies that we've been adding to, and we we still think it's just trading at 15 to 20% discount to what is a fair value on the company, and maybe even just slightly more, and that would be Autodesk which again is a software company, very well positioned across many, many industries, provides uh, you know, essential software for you know, contractors, builders, engineers. Uh, back you know, about 20 years ago, they bought the leading player in, you know, for architects, for building design. Last, uh, in 2001, they bought a company called InnoVase, Inno, and um, they're the leader in water uh, systems, water technology, water infrastructure. And so you get a company like Autodesk, which is, you know, got a free cash flow yield of uh, a little bit over 5%, but growing 15% plus a year has 98% retention rate on clients. I mean, once you, once you're established with Autodesk, it's very difficult to get rid of them, which is what we love about these software companies, high, high retention rates. Um, because they have high retention rates, you need them. They can put prices up, which they did this year to adjust for inflationary costs. And uh, they continue to, um, to, you know, to, to build into other verticals and sell more and more products to the same clients. And so businesses like that are amazing franchises. And so if we can buy them at uh, 5% plus sort of free cash flow yields and they're growing at um, you know, you know, 12, 15, 16, 17% consistently and still have that growth in them, then why wouldn't we buy those companies, a company like Autodesk versus, versus a company that probably is not really growing that much faster, but you're going to be paying maybe twice the multiple, if not maybe two and a half to three times the multiple for it. So um, we, we just encourage investors to look below the surface, look for companies that really have strong moats, are essential, 
but are not trading at the same valuations. Maybe they don't have the same sex appeal in the market, who knows what, but um, they're great businesses. We own another company, I think I mentioned on a previous, um, when we were on, you know, talking, I think it was maybe in a Q&A with some of the other uh, American advisors, a company called Roper Technologies also, which is, a, which is a large software company. And they own, you know, they own, um, they, they control different small industry verticals with software. And it's an amazing company too. And that's a company that's been growing last five years, 22, 22% a year, double the market over the last 10. Um, they just continue to reinvest back in the business. They're tremendous investors. They run it like a little bit of a mini Berkshire Hathaway where they upstream the cash flow from the software business they control. And then they they take it to the head, head, head office and then they use that to reinvest in other businesses. And they just continue to grow and reinvest back in the business. And businesses like that, um, again, aren't front and center, but boy, are they profitable. And over extended periods of time, they perform better than the S&P 500. And so uh, those are the kind of areas that we, we were, we're looking at and we encourage investors just go a little deeper. You don't have to just own the magnificent seven and then add Tesla and NVIDIA and a few others to it. You can add, you can buy great companies that um, are below the surface. All right, great. And Jonathan, I do want to thank you for being so granular in what you're sharing with us today, you know, not just strategies and general industry assessments, but you're giving us actual names for viewers to go and research. So thank you so much for being that specific. Um, all right. And then last, and then we'll start to wrap things up, um, uh, the mining sector. Uh, I know in particular uh, at, at Rocklink, you guys, uh, you know, look at the precious metals uh, mining sector, um, but Canada has lots of rich natural resources. I know that's big on your radar. Um, but it's been it's it's been a tough year, we'll say, right? It's been it's been it's been very difficult. In fact, I was just writing our third quarter report. If you go back year over year, gold is actually up eleven percent to the end of uh, September. Um, but the last quarter, it's off, and um, so it's not off a great deal from its high when you think of the way commodities trade. You know, a little over two thousand uh, two thousand and seventy, I guess, with the ultimate high down to you know. Uh, 18, 1850, 1860, where it is today type of thing. But the stocks themselves, many of them, especially some of the leading miners have been cut, in, you know, maybe cut by 40%, maybe almost 50% too. So, um, and so when you look at that, yeah, we see some good opportunities. And for a lot of investors who are nervous and concerned about the market, which as we've talked about, we also are, that's why we're digging so hard to find companies that are trading at good values. And, and, and again, just dollar cost averaging, keeping some powder dry, being very cautious as we go. But for people who are, are very concerned about the market, often they, you know, they'll just go and buy gold, gold companies or gold stocks and so forth. And yet, you know, all they've been rewarded with is just pain you know, pain trade, and you're thinking, when is this going to end? Like, what is going on? So what we do is we, again, just try to build positions in the best one, have it as a certain portion of the portfolio. So when we're thinking about really the premier miner, now, as we've talked about on previous shows, mostly, you know, we own royalty companies. And I'll come back to that in a second. But in terms of miners, one of the best miners and major miner is Agnico Eagle. It's a great, it's a well-run company. It's politically in the safest areas in the world for the majority of assets. And yet it's trading, um, of course, I'm always thinking Canadian dollars, a little over, little over $60, so around $50, you know, high, high 40s, $50 in the U.S. But um, back, back, you know, two years ago, that, that, that stock was practically $100 Canadian and uh, probably about $80, almost $80 U.S. 
and they continue to grow, continue to expand, producing more and more, you know, gold. And so we think that's if people are looking at really a premier miner and want to want, want one of the best, Agnico Eagles is is very inexpensive and trading, you know, thirty percent discount at least to any kind of reasonable intrinsic value. And that's not that's not factoring in twenty five hundred gold or some, you know, five thousand gold or anything like that. <laughs> that's factoring in current prices. And then we do own a number of the royalty companies because as we talked about before, they finance the mines, but then they get a piece of the action. They get a royalty stream that comes back. They're much safer. You can diversify across many regions. Um, they are not plagued with the same you know, challenge with inflationary costs and so forth. And there's some really good, well-run royalty companies. So Franco Nevada would be the big, the, the big daddy of them all, if you will. But even Franco, um, which does trade at a higher multiple of NAV, you know, net asset value, is still, in our view, probably about 10 to 15 percent below really where it should be trading at these prices. Um, and uh, because of its elite status and the quality of its investments, and also the growth. But if you take a wheat and precious metals which is a uh, another royalty company, probably this, you know, the second largest one. Um, they have tremendous growth prospects built into them over the next five years. And uh, we, we think they're trading probably a 25 to 30% discount again at these prices. That's not factoring in, you know, um, large increase in gold. Um, and Sandstorm Royalty also be trading at a similar discount. And uh, and so we think that space, uh, Cisco Royalties is another quality company. They got, they got hit more recently only because they had a change in CEO and a little bit of a tussle at the board level. But again, as a royal, as a royalty company, they already have all these great assets all lined up. Um, do they need a good CEO? Of course they need a good CEO, but um, we think they'll be able to replace, you know, the CEO. Um, and, uh, and, you know, their underlying assets are fantastic and long-term and uh, undervalued. So that's another space. If people are nervous and concerned, valuations there have not done very well, but the price of gold and silver have been pretty robust. And so there's a disconnect there. That's another place to just pick away, be careful, be disciplined, and uh, chip away and add to your portfolios. If the world does get into a real mess, then boy, the upside could be significant. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I hate to root for the world getting into a real mess. But um, again, that's sort of some of the some of the way to be along something if you're worried about crisis, right? Um, yes, absolutely. All right. So um, in wrapping up here, I did say a few minutes ago, I'd ask you, um, you know, the prospects of of the economy, the global economy, we'll say, you know, US, Canada, and many other countries uh, going into recession, for argument's sake, let's say within the next 12 months, what impact, if any, does that have on what you just told us? Yeah, no, we we're tr we we believe that the probability of a recession. Again, we're not predicting that. We're not uh, stock market prognosticators in terms of uh, economic predictions, but it, it it's it's got to be fairly high because you've just hiked interest rates to such a large extent, and that has to run through the system. And we've had a fairly strong, you know, the economic growth has been quite strong coming out of COVID and so forth. So we fully anticipate in our analysis and in the valuation of the companies we're looking at a slowdown in the economy. Now, if that doesn't come, fantastic. That's great. But we're factoring that in and uh, we're doing that both with the uh, with how we're valuing the businesses in terms of conservatism and also by carrying a little extra cash around in the portfolios. But uh, yeah, we're in the camp where... I don't know. I mean, we we had such a long period of almost zero interest rates 
that there's too many zombie companies out there. There's too many places where the pressure points are being uh, put on that um, it's it's almost impossible to see that we're not going to have at least some um, some kind some type of recession. And to be honest with you, in Canada, we're we're already you know it's a tougher go in Canada than it is in the U.S. and in Europe, it's not a easy go. Also, they're having a tough time over there. UK also. And, uh, and as we're seeing, China now is trying to stimulate their economy and pumping more money into it. They just announced over the last 24 hours because they're they're also feeling a lot of pressure. So we could be back to the central banks, you know, loading in some more capital. We'll see. But, uh, you know, so it doesn't the, the answer to your question directly. It doesn't really change what we're doing right now. We're trying to factor that into our analysis and our thought process. Got it. OK, so it, it sounds like, you know, when you are considering making an investment in a stock, you have done your your bottoms up valuation for the company, and then you're basically putting some sort of recession haircut in there already. Uh, and you're nodding as I'm saying this. Okay, great. Um, all right. Um, well, Jonathan, look, this has been a great discussion. Thank you. Um, I was a, I was trying to figure out how to massage this discussion because it, it's it's a really important one to have. Because again, I'm not telling people not to be concerned and not to play defense um, and not to be conservative. I'm, I'm all three of those things myself. Um, but as you and I had talked about before, you know, when we decided to have this discussion, we wanted to make sure that people were eyes wide open about those trade-offs that I mentioned. And I think you've given a really good explanation for how a capital manager who's got a fiduciary duty to say, I've got to do the best thing for my client's assets. If the best things were to just put all the money in the shoebox, that's what you'd be doing right now. But you're not, you're deploying it intelligently with a fair hedge with a good chunk of cash you know still in the portfolio but walking us through that logic i think is really helpful for giving people a sense of what they could be doing themselves or what they could be partnering with a, a professional financial advisor to do so thank you very much um so real quick jonathan as we wrap things up um i just want to give two resources for folks um what jonathan you're, you're going to be at this event coming up in just a week and a half which is wealthion's uh, fall online conference Saturday, October 21st. Um, folks, that conference is almost here. If you haven't registered for it yet and you're interested in registering it, do so now, really. And the reason why you want to do so now is because the last chance to save price discount expires this Sunday. And then the tickets jump up the full ticket price. I want as many people as possible to get a discount for this event uh, if they haven't registered already. So act and to do that, just go to Wealthion dot com slash conference and a reminder that um, even if you can't watch the event live everybody who registers will be sent replay videos of the entire event all the presentations all the q a uh, we try to get those to you the same night uh, as the uh, as the event ends but but it might be the next day but within 24 hours so if you can't watch live you're going to have the chance to watch everything very quickly thereafter um, and just a reminder Again, you know, tough times, confusing times, challenging times for individual people to figure out how to navigate their wealth through all this uncertainty we've been talking about, Jonathan. You've given some really good ideas on a framework and a strategy. Um, most folks, I think, you know, it, it's very good for them to have that orientation. The actual implementation is challenging for a lot of folks because they don't have the experience that obviously a professional like you do, but they also have real lives. Like their attention is demanded by their jobs, their families, other commitments. They're not sitting at their desks watching the markets, you know, day after day, minute after minute, like you guys at Rockwink are. Um, so that's why I always, you know, encourage people, unless you're highly experienced already at doing this yourself, 
work under the guidance of a, of a good professional financial advisor uh, who can be your guide here. Just make sure that they take into account all of the issues, macro and otherwise, that Jonathan talked about here. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't have one or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe if you live in Canada, uh, Jonathan himself and his team there at Rocklink, then consider filling out the short form, consider scheduling a consultation with the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion. And to do that, you fill out the short form over at Wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple seconds to fill it out. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service that these advisors offer to help as many people as possible, position as prudently as possible for what may lie ahead. If you've enjoyed this discussion, would like to see more discussions like this with Jonathan, where we bring him back on and he's you know, opening the kimono and showing us all the specific country, uh, companies that he's actually looking at right now, please uh, vote in support of that by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well. Mm -hmm as that little bell icon right next to it. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I'll let you have the last word here if you have any parting bits of advice or counsel for the viewers here. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Adam. It's been uh, wonderful to speak with you. Yeah, I think I just reiterate, yes, be careful, cautious as we go, but uh, don't neglect to have some oars in the water, if you will. You need to be participating. And so uh, be cautious, careful, but uh, go forward with uh, as much knowledge as possible. All right, thanks so much, Jonathan. Uh, I'll see you at the conference. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.